You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. In 399 BC, the Athenian philosopher Socrates was arrested. He was put on trial on two charges. The first being impiety and the second for corrupting the youth. So on the charges of impiety, he was pretty outspoken against some of the Athenian pantheon. And so uh, in in that kind of society, to, to be outspoken against the gods was really dangerous because they feared, look, if you're speaking against the gods, if you're not appeasing them, they might rain down wrath on you. And so really for the whole society, if you're, you know, um, not faithful and pious, it could be bad for everybody. And on the second charge of corrupting the youth, see, he would regularly gather the youth of the city and he would engage in these philosophical dialogues that many found threatening to the current political order. In fact, Socrates described himself as the gadfly of Athens. You know what a gadfly is? A gadfly is really any fly that hangs around livestock and bites them. So if you've ever seen like a cow or a horse and they're constantly kind of doing this because there's flies that uh, surround them, that's what a gadfly is. They're persistent. They're annoying. They won't go away. And so Socrates, as the gadfly of Athens, took it as his personal mission to poke at the status quo, to poke at the current political order. And so, in 399 BC, Socrates was put on trial. The trial lasted one day. He was convicted and sentenced to death, and he famously uh, asked if he could uh, administer his own lethal injection, as it were, and drink a poisonous cup of hemlock. Now, his student, Plato, wrote about his trial in his work, The Apology of Socrates. Now, in Greek philosophy, the word apology doesn't mean I'm sorry. So the apology of Socrates is not him saying, hey, I'm sorry. It's actually the opposite of that. The apology in in Greek philosophy means uh, a defense. So it was the defense of Socrates. And in his defense, when Socrates was on trial, uh, he really didn't deny any of the charges. He didn't say, I didn't do those things. What he was doing was giving a defense for why he did those things. He doesn't claim to deny his position or to be misunderstood. What he is, his whole defense is basically, what I'm doing is right. What I'm doing is not wrong. In fact, he says, I can't stop what I'm doing. I can't stop pressing people to question and consider what they believe and why And then he says one of the most famous lines in all of Western philosophy. He says, he can't stop because the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. So like a gadfly that won't go away, that won't stop biting, Socrates says, I will not stop pressing and poking the youth of our day to ask deeper questions. They need to learn how to consider the why behind the what. Why do they do what they do? Why as a society are we doing the things that we do? Because the unexamined life is not worth living. 
So for Socrates, merely getting up and going to work and doing your job, coming home, watching TV, going to bed, and then repeating this process day in and day out without ever really reflecting on what you ought to do and what you should value and taking the time to consider the why behind every what. That life, that unexamined life is not worth living. And this morning, as we continue in our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer, the preacher, the teacher is asking us to do the same. Really, this whole book has been his quest to say, the unexamined life is not worth living. Look at your life. Examine it. In fact, Ecclesiastes is the philosophy book of the Bible. It asks big questions that can only be answered through slow and thoughtful reflection. And this morning as we've gone chapter by chapter, we come up to the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. And we come to another question posed in chapter 6 verse 12. Here's what the question is. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? In other words, what is the good life? If our life is brief, if it passes quickly like a shadow, then what are we to do with this limited brief time that we have? In fact, the Hebrew word tov, which means good, is used 11 times in these 17 verses, which is often a really good indicator of the theme of a certain passage. Sometimes in your Bible you'll see it translated as good. So you can underline that. That's the word tov. Sometimes it's translated in our Bibles as the word better. It shows up as the word prosperity and joyful. But it's all the same Hebrew word. What is the good life? How does a person live a good life in a fragile and fleeting world? How do we live the examined life in this broken and vain plagued world? So here's where we're going to go this morning. First, we're going to take a moment to look at the question. We're going to unpack it and see what he's asking. How do we live the good life? We'll see that in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. And then, in the 14 verses that we'll cover in chapter 7, the the preacher is going to walk us through a series of Proverbs that give answers to the question for us to consider how to live the good life in a wise and faithful life. Way. We'll have four answers to those questions and we'll, uh, and we'll unpack it as we go. So let's start in verse 10 of chapter 6 to see the question, how do we live the good life? Here again the word of the Lord, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity and what is the advantage to man. So the preacher is beginning a new section, but he, re- he returns to a recurring theme throughout the book. We saw this particularly in chapter 3, that God determines the seasons of life. What we experience in the present and what is to come in the future, the preacher says, has already been named. You saw that in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. It's already been determined. We can't change the way in which our world is been. Remember, we, 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 uh, we saw this back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14. 
preacher says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear him. And not only that, not only can we not change the way in which the world is made, and, and, and not only can we not uh, determine the seasons, we can't change the way we're made. Human beings are made with limits. You are not limitless. The reality of being limitless is reserved for God. We are limited in power, limited in scope. We can only be in one place at one time. We have a capacity problem. We can't do it all. We aren't in control. We aren't sovereign. Humans have limits. And often when we come up against those limitations, we find that our limitations are rather limiting and frustrating. And we find in ourselves an impulse to protest. But the preacher reminds us that we're not able to dispute with the one stronger than us. You saw that in the text. He said, but we can't dispute with the one stronger. That's a reference to God. We may not like that, that God is sovereign and we are not. But it is precisely that because God is sovereign and we are not, that makes disputing with him ultimately futile. Now that sets up verse 12. Look what he says. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Here's another one of those rhetorical questions in the book. Remember when we started this series, I told you there would be 32 of these rhetorical questions throughout Ecclesiastes. The whole point of these kinds of questions are meant for us to slow down and to consider a rhetorical question is no good if you blow right past it. You're meant to slow down and think. And by way of keeping count, this is the 22nd rhetorical question in the book. And it drives the theme of the next 14 verses. And what he's saying is, in light of our limitations, in light of the reality that God sets the seasons, in light of the reality that God sets the boundaries of our life, in light of the reality that we live in a fragile and futile world, in light of the brevity and vanity of it all, how do we live? How do we live? Now this isn't a question of despair. He's not saying, you know, can anyone know? He's not saying that knowing what is good is impossible. That's not what he's saying here. It doesn't mean that no one can know what is good and therefore life and meaning are impossible to know in this life. Remember, the preacher doesn't believe that life is utterly and completely void of meaning. That's not what he means by that, that things are vain and meaningless. What he's saying is, there must be something more meaningful than what I see around me. The whole point of the book is to find meaning in the meaningless. Something lasting in the transient. Something tangible in the elusive. Something profitable in the futile. And his whole point is that most of what we give our lives to isn't that thing. And the goal of life, the, uh, the, the goal of the wise life is to learn how to properly discern between the trivial and the significant. And our main problem is we major in the trivial and we minor in the significant. And the truly wise one will learn how to reverse those things. And this rhetorical question 
is the preacher's way of saying, listen, the unexamined life is not worth living. Therefore, if you truly want to live, if you want life to be real life, you will be courageous enough to ask, how can I live the examined life? It takes a lot of courage to do that. It takes a lot of courage to be willing to say, to what pursuits am I giving a lot of time that I shouldn't be? What things in my life have I considered to be so important that in reality actually aren't? What is the good life? And what follows, the preacher will answer this question in four primary ways. And we'll cover them one by one. Now one quick note. This exploration is not exhaustive. Here's what I mean. He's not going to say everything about everything. He's not going to cover every single aspect of the good life. He's not going to provide commentary on every single topic under the sun. Though his list is not exhaustive, I do find it to be exceedingly helpful. Meaning, if we were able to take these four answers and to think rightly about them, believe rightly about them, live out the answers that the preacher provides, we would be well on our way to living a wise life. And faithful life. So let's start unpacking the question. How do we live the good life? Here's our first answer. It's live in light of the end. If you're a note taker. This is answer number one. Live in light of the end. Chapter 7 verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. As Solomon answers the question about living the good life. He's going to do so through proverbial wisdom. That makes sense, right? He's one of the main writers of the book of Proverbs. So let's unpack this first proverb. A good name is better than precious ointment. What does that mean? Well, a person's name is representative of who they are. It's their, represent, it's their reputation. It's their um, identity. I had the privilege this summer of, of coaching uh, the, the district all-star team for Waltham Youth Baseball. And I would tell them, you have two names on your jersey. You've got a name on the front, it says Waltham on it. it. Tells about who you are, where you're from. And then the name on the back is your last name. It represents who you are and your, your family and, and, and what it represents. And so wear both of them well. Because your name says something about you. It's your identity. It's your character. It's your, it, 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 and, it's in, and, and it's valuable. It's not meaningless. It's not insignificant. Proverbs 22 verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. See, a person's name is not simply a collection of, of, uh, 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 of sounds to get someone's attention. That's not the only purpose of someone's name. You can say their name, and in one short breath, it captures who they are. And Solomon says it is to be valued more than a large bank account. Now, what's the deal with the ointment here? Well, don't think like cheap first aid cream, okay? Don't think Axe body spray. That's not what's going on here. In the ancient world, an ointment was extremely valuable, cost a lot of money, it had many purposes. It could be used to heal worn out skin or weathered skin. It was often mixed with um, aromatic spices so that it had a, a, a fragrance to it, an aroma. 
Think back to a world with little access to showers and modern medicine, and you can see why ointments would be extremely valuable. You remember in the Gospels when Mary Magdalene comes and anoints Jesus with a precious ointment? She doesn't use a little. She uses a lot. She uses the whole jar. And who has a fit about it? Judas. Why? Well, he says, listen, that jar could have been sold. And it would have been the amount of a whole year's wage. Whole year's wage. Now we know in hindsight that Judas was the treasurer of the group. And we know that he had become compromised. But the point I'm trying to make here is that it was very valuable. Judas wasn't wrong on that. He was just wrong in saying that Jesus wasn't worth all that value. What the proverb is saying, ultimately, it doesn't matter if you smell good and look good if when your name is mentioned, a stench rises in the room. A good name is better than a good ointment. Now, most people would actually agree with this sentiment that at the end of the day, a good reputation is better than even a costly ointment. And that's the point. The point of him using this first line of the proverb, it's kind of genius. He gives a first proverb that almost everybody would go, yeah, I believe that. I, I agree with that. He's stating something that's obviously true that you will likely agree with in order to say the next line, which is a little harder to agree with. So he says... A good name is better than a good ointment. And then here's the line he wants you to really uh, hang your hat on. That the day of death is better than the day of birth. See what I mean? A little harder to, re to receive because you go, well, I think birth is better than death. Like new life better than the ending of life. So what does he mean? Well, he's not actually suggesting that the actual day of your death is better than the actual day of your birth. This isn't a morbid celebration of death. Keep reading with me. Verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of faith, a face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. We probably don't use that word mirth a lot today. That's like laughter, joy, good times. Now verses 2 to 4 provide a helpful explanation to that line, the day of death is better than the day of birth. See, the day of death pictures a funeral. It's the house of mourning, the appropriate time for sorrow. Day of birth is like a maternity ward. The house of feasting, it's a time of laughter, it's a time of celebration and joy. And what the preacher is saying is that the day of death is better because it's a better teacher than the day of birth. See, here's what he's getting at. Everyone is going to die. I hope that's not shocking new information to you. It is the end of all mankind. One out of every one people will die. It is universal. It is inescapable. And it is inevitable. Death does not discriminate against age, sex, ethnicity, economics, 
geography, meaning you can go anywhere at any point in time and you will find cemeteries and graveyards and memorials and monuments to people who have come and gone. You will see birth dates, you will see death dates, and you will see little dashes in between. Every single person is going to die. And the preacher says, the living, the truly wise, will lay it to heart. Meaning, the wise will contemplate this reality when they go to the house of mourning. In other words, coffins preach better sermons than cribs. If you're looking to really consider your life, if you're looking to contemplate how you're living The best sermons come from coffins, not baby cribs. Death is a preacher with a singular and simple message. One day, you are going to die. Every one of us. And so, death's message is, what are you going to do with your life? preacher is saying memento mori it's a latin phrase it means remember death remember death now our society has done a fantastic job of doing everything to help us not remember death like we don't prepare the bodies of our loved ones who have passed away we have completely outsourced that in the ancient world you did that you had a family member die, you took care of that. There, was no, there were no professional morticians and morgues. They were very acquainted with death. And we have put that to the side. We don't even notice the cemeteries that we drive by. We don't think about funerals. Except a few times, every so often when we go to one. Death is completely outside of everyday thoughtfulness. And the preacher is saying, don't let that happen. Remember death and then live your life backwards. Think about the day of your death and then live in light of the end. Think about what you want said at your funeral. David Gibson writes this, the preacher has learned that there are two types of people at the funeral. So get it in your head. You're sitting there at the funeral. There are going to be two types of people there. The first is the fool who sits there thinking how unbearably grim this is. Can't wait to be outside in the sunshine and back to what he was doing and then to go out and go to the pub in the evening. That's the fool. The wise person at the funeral stares at the coffin and realizes one day it will be his turn. The wise person asks himself, when it is my turn, what will my life have been worth what will they be saying about me see funerals have a way of bringing life into focus in a way that you can't get just by going to the comedy club or going to a sporting event or going to work those things do not stir up in you the kind of sobriety that a funeral does see every funeral is a reminder of your eventual end. One day, 
people will gather at your funeral. What will they say about you? What will be spoken? Will it be trivial things like they were a really good gardener? Okay, that's, that's a good thing, but is it significant? Oh, they really loved the Red Sox. Oh, okay. But like, is that important? Or would they say, man, she lived for other people. She gave her life for others. What a great mom. What a great dad. Or you could count on them. When you needed someone, they were there. They would drop everything, any moment, and be by your side. You could trust this person. You could confide in this person. There was a depth about this person. They walked with the Lord. What will they say about you at your funeral? See, friends, death preaches a better sermon to remind us that one day we will die too. And Solomon says the wise will let that truth lay heavy on their hearts. You'll let it sit there so you can feel it. You can feel the weight of it. Now, is death an intruder into God's created order? Absolutely. Is death an enemy? You had better believe it. He's not saying death is our friend. He's just saying death is inevitable. Therefore, don't deny it. The day of your death, Solomon says, can become a teacher to bring sobriety and perspective. It can become a tuning fork to calibrate your life when it goes out of tune. It can become a compass that keeps you focused on where to go. The wise will allow death to become a mentor that constantly reminds them and is constantly asking them to consider what is trivial and what is significant. The preacher is saying, do you want to live the good life? Do you want to use your time well? Go to the cemetery. Walk around. Look at the birthdays. Look at the death days. See the names. Read the epitaphs. Look at the little tiny dashes between the dates that represent an entire lifetime. Consider your life. Don't live in denial. Don't live in despair. Don't be delusional. In other words, he's saying, it is better to have a cup of coffee in the cemetery than a cocktail at a party. Stare death in the face. Confront the reality of it and use it to live your life in light of the end. That's the answer to the first, that's the first answer to the question. How do we live the good life? Well, we live in light of the end. Now look at verse 5. Second answer is always be teachable. Verse 5, it's better for man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Verses 5 to 6, Solomon gives us another answer to the question. If you're going to live the good life, you need to be teachable. Always be teachable. That's our second answer. And again, this truth comes to us by way of proverbial wisdom. He's saying it's better in the long run to be rebuked by the wise than to be amused 
in the company of fools. And then he gives an analogy. He says, when you, when you start a fire, what do you do? You gather kindling. Not big logs, but small sticks. Why? Because they're easy to light. They're easy to get going. Small branches easily burn to get the fire started. And as good as they are for starting fires, they're terrible at keeping fires going, aren't they? They burn out quickly. They are not good for longevity. They don't make a long, burning, hot fire that can warm a home or cook a meal. So he's saying, is amusement good? Of course. Is laughter good? Of course. He's not against laughter and amusement. But he is saying they don't bring clarity and course correction like rebuke does. It's the whole point of rebuke. Now, no one gets up first thing in the morning and says, you know what I could use today? Is a good rebuke. I hope I don't see it coming. I hope I'm just... Moving along and bam, rebuke. That's what I'm looking forward to today. No, no one says that. We're drawn to laughter. We're drawn to amusement. An invitation to a concert or a sporting event or a comedy club is exciting. You want to say yes to it. You don't need convincing to go do something fun. But all laughter and no rebuke makes for a vain life. Everyone needs correction. There's no one here today who is so wise and able that they never need correction. Everyone needs a true friend who will tell you hard truths. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. See, a true friend will tell you things you don't want to hear. It may feel like a wound at first. The rebuke of a good friend, though, is meant for our good. It's like a surgeon. What does a scalpel do? It's basically a really sharp knife. It cuts you. It's a wound, but it's a wound with the intention of healing, isn't it? The purpose of the scalpel is to heal. The words of a friend are like wounds, but they're faithful. See, we aren't predisposed to being teachable. We're not born that way. Sin makes us think we're always right. And that our perspective is right. And we may not say this out loud, but we often think the world would be a better place if people would just align their perspective to mine. You know, the easiest way to resolve this conflict, just take my side. It's like saying, I love teachability for everyone but me. I really wish you would be teachable. Then we could get along. That's pride. That's sin. And that's our problem. And Solomon's saying you can't live an examined life if every time you examine it, you think, no, I'm right. That's not, the per- that's not the point of examination. The point of examination is to point out where you need to make adjustments and overhauls. And because of our sin, we're often blind to those things in our life. We're blind to our own insufficiencies and we're blind to our own shortcomings. That's why Solomon says... The rebuke of the wise, the correction of friends, is to be valued over the laughter of fools. How do you live the good life? Answer one, live in light of the end. Answer two, always be teachable. And number three, don't take the easy way out. Now before we start unpacking verses 7 to 10, I want to tell you there are going to be four Proverbs that deal with four different ideas. We're going to see the topics of power, patience, anger, nostalgia. And when I was reading this... 
at first, I thought, man, this is just a random assortment of things. It's just kind of like one thing after another. But then I had to ask, what do they all have in common? And here's what they have in common. Every one of them is teaching against taking the easy way out instead of taking the longer, harder road. Though they deal with different topics, the unifying theme is don't take the easy way out. Let me show you. Verse 7. He says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So in verse 7, Solomon's saying, if you live long enough, at some point you will be faced with a hard decision to give up your personal integrity. Perhaps it will be a person offering uh, a, a bribe to go along with their scheme. Maybe, maybe they'll say, listen, um, I know you know what's going on here. But if you'll turn the other way, we'll give you a promotion. There's going to be some opportunity to say, listen, we'll give you something advantageous and beneficial to you. All it will cost is your integrity. Solomon says, don't take the easy way out. Don't give in to that temptation. Stand your ground. Giving in to the temptation of advancement and benefit at the cost of your character, Solomon says, will bring corruption. It'll corrupt the heart. This is a statement on the value of personal integrity as a key component to the good life. Verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. So in verse 8, Solomon says, look, it's easy to get excited about new things, new ventures, new ideas. It's easy to start something. And when the project gets tough, when you come to that first problem, it's easy to abandon it and go, ah, well, I didn't want to do that anyway. That's why seeing something through, Solomon says, is better than the beginning. Beginnings are good, don't get me wrong, but seeing something through to the end is better. He's saying finish what you start. Don't take the easy way out. Be patient and don't give up. Patient is required to see something through to the end. The most worthwhile ventures need time and hard work to come to, to fruition. In other words, Solomon's saying impatience is one of the defining marks of a fool. If you want to live the good life, the faithful life, it will be marked by patience. Now, verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Verse 9 says... The easy way out is anger. We are often quick to anger and slow to self-control. Solomon says the fool is marked by anger. It's literally become lodged in his heart. Now I am, I happen to be a subject matter expert on anger. So I know this one. I know this one full well. See, anger is the easier path. There's no doubt about it. It is just easy to let the floodgates go. It's easier than patience. It's easier than self-control. But Solomon says the good life is marked by peace, patience, and gentleness, not uncontrolled and selfish anger. See how these are all collectively saying don't take the easy way out. Don't start something and not finish it. Don't give up your character for advancement. Don't give in to impatience and be angry. And now verse 10, he says, say not, 
Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask. Now in verse 10, Solomon is confronting nostalgia. That feeling that we have that the former days were better than today. Have you ever had that feeling when you see the headlines come in and you go, or maybe you're looking at your relationships or you're looking at your life and you say something like this, why can't we go back to the way things used to be? That's nostalgia. Now it may be true that the past had aspects of it that were better than what you might be currently facing. The problem is, is we tend to have an, uh, an inaccurate view of the past, don't we? When we think about the past, it, uh, we, we revise it. It's like revisionist history. We edit out all the bad stuff, particularly the bad stuff we did, you know. And we look back on it and go, man, I was, like, I was a much better person back then. And look how things were. We revise and edit the things we don't like from it. The problem is, is the past is never as good in reality as you actually remember it. And not only is that pro- does that make nostalgia problematic, it's also kind of an implicit denial that God is in control and is working every detail of everything to bring about the culmination of his plan. It's like saying, look, God, you're doing a terrible job at the present. If you could just bring about, what, like, we like what you were doing in the past. Like, just make that what's happening now. It's like saying, God, I would, I'm not, you know, trying to rebuke you or anything or tell you how to be God, but... It would be better if. Subtle realities there. God is just as present in today's reality as he was back then. He's not less present today than he was then. The problem ultimately with nostalgia is just a way of escaping the present. Instead of dealing with what's going on right now, we fantasize about the past. Instead of facing the problems of the day, we take the easy way out and retreat to the past. Now listen, I'm not against the past. We can be grateful for it. We can be grateful for what the Lord has done and those memories and those relationships. But you and I are not called to long for or to live in the past. C.S. Lewis said that nostalgia is an emotion of longing and it's always bittersweet. When we feel nostalgia, we can experience a feeling of, of something lost. And yet at the same time, it's a beautiful perception of what has been lost. And so we long for it. Listen to what Lewis writes here. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things... The beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the heart of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They only have the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we've never visited. You know what he's saying? When you feel that, that emotion of, of nostalgia, that feeling, that longing is not actually uh, in the past. It's actually the future. What he's saying is that longing for that, uh, to, to relive that beauty, to relive that longing, it's really heaven breaking in to the present. It's your sense of home and goodness and belonging. And so when you get these moments of nostalgia, Don't look back on a romanticized version of the past. Instead, when you feel that feeling, 
Let it do what it's intended to do, which is to point you forward. Let the feeling tilt your head up and long for the home that God has prepared for you. In other words, those feelings of, man, there's something good. I, I, there was something in that moment that was awesome. He's saying that awesomeness is awaiting for you. And it's not found in the past. It's found as we look forward to the life that God has for us. How do we live the good life? We don't take the easy way out. We take the long road of integrity and patience and self-control and an eagerness and waiting for redemption. Now let's look at our final answer to the question in verses 11 through 14. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So here Solomon reminds us of the value of wisdom. He says it's a good thing, like an inheritance. An inheritance is a good thing. In fact, a more clearer way to translate this proverb would be to say it like this. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. What's an inheritance? Well, it's, it's passed down from parents to their children. All the, the wealth and the things that they've accumulated over a lifetime is then passed down and given to the next generation. It's, it's, to be, it's to be a help, a leg up, so that we can kind of keep this wealth and these possessions in the family. It can be gained and passed down from one generation to the next. And Solomon's saying wisdom is like that. It's a good thing. And like an inheritance, what is gained in one life can be passed down from one generation to another. Wisdom is good and it does provide an advantage to life. In other words, the preacher is saying life is fragile and it's fleeting. It's broken and it's difficult. But it's better to live a life of wisdom than it is to live a life of folly. Now look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So if verses 11 and 12 are saying wisdom is good, it's an advantage, it's valuable, verses 13 to 14 speak of its limitations. And that brings us to our final answer to the question, how do we live the good life? Final answer is accept your limitations. Solomon says no matter how wise you are, you cannot make straight what God has made crooked. As good as wisdom is, as much as it should be pursued and desired and even passed down from generation to generation, it cannot undo what has been made crooked. See, the world has been subjected to futility. That's what Romans 8 teaches, that because of sin, the entire creation order is crooked. And this judgment wasn't by accident. In fact, it wasn't outside of God's control. Romans 8 says it was God who subjected it to futility. That when sin entered in, it was God who brought judgment upon that sin. God made it crooked in order that he might display his settled opposition and wrath towards sin and evil. No matter how wise we are. No matter how much our society advances, we cannot 
undo the curse. We cannot make the crooked straight. We cannot eradicate all suffering. Even the advantage and inheritance of wisdom has its limits. So what are we supposed to do? The preacher says, in days of prosperity, receive them with gratitude and joy. So when things are going well, and it's a day of prosperity, you should have hands raised saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this job. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this meal. Thank you, Lord, for the sweetness and closeness of relationships. Lord, thank you for this day of prosperity. I know it comes from you, and I receive it with gladness and gratitude. And then he says, in days of adversity, yes, be wise, apply that wisdom to endurance and and overcoming adversity and all of these small little areas where we can straighten out a little bit of the line, do so. Where you can alleviate suffering, do so. But also, maybe more importantly, remember that it's God who sets the seasons and times. Prosperity comes from the hand of the Lord and adversity comes from the hand of the Lord. And yet God is always at work through them both. Friend, God is as much for you and as much with you in the days of your prosperity as he is in the days of your adversity. You are not in control. You are limited. Wisdom is a good gift. Don't despise it. And yet, even the wisest of people, the greatest of wisdom does not give you total control over your life. As you pursue the good life, accept your limitations. Friends, we can't make crooked the crooked straight. We can't undo the curse. We can't set ourselves on a trajectory on our own for life beyond the sun. We cannot undo the inevitability of coming death. But thanks be to God that there is one greater than Solomon who has come, who does make straight what is crooked, who does undo the curse, who is the great death interrupter. Thanks be to God that in Christ we can live the good life because Jesus died a good death and is actively at work to finish the work that he started. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, I am sure of this very thing. In a world where many things are unsure, Paul says, there is one thing I am certain about. That the one who began a good work, there's our word good, who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In verse 9, he says, I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Friend, if you are in Christ, if you've put your hope and your faith and your trust in him, then here's what is true. I am very sure of this, that he has began a good work in you. It's already started.
And not only that, God will see it to completion. See, this is the hope of the gospel. Not that God begins a good work and says, I hope you get there. He says, I have begun a good work in you and I will see it to completion. He never leaves unfinished what he started. He will finish and bring it to completion. And so Paul says, as you trust that God will see your transformation to its glorious conclusion, he says, grow in love and affection for Jesus. Grow in godly wisdom to decide what is best and to pursue the good life where you live in light of the end, where you're always teachable, where you resist taking the easy way out, and you, by God's grace, accept your limitations. Let's pray.